word of caution. The segment featuring Brittany Drexel contains information that some may find disturbing, with a description of kidnapping and sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 24, South Carolina Cases Featured on Disappeared. Hello everyone and welcome. This week, I'd like to continue discussing cases from the Carolinas featured on the true crime documentary, Disappeared, focusing specifically on South Carolina. Last week's episode 23 featured people from North Carolina who have been discussed on the show, as well as a bit of history on the Investigation Discovery Channel, so be sure to check that out if you haven't already. Now let's get started. Season 1, Episode 4, titled The Last Truck Stop, featured a woman named Michelle Whitaker from Spartanburg, South Carolina. She had been battling some demons and been arrested for a DUI. She was supposed to attend court-ordered rehab for drug and alcohol abuse, but instead left town in August of 2002. She was last seen asking for a ride to a truck stop off Interstate 85. What I found interesting about this episode was that her family and investigators made the connection that Michelle knew a young man named Jonathan Vick, who was suspected of causing harm to his missing girlfriend, who worked at the local Waffle House, Heather Sellers. If you'll remember, we discussed Jonathan Vick back in episode 14, when I covered South Carolina cases featured on Unsolved Mysteries. He was eventually convicted of murdering Dana Satterfield in 1995, and Heather Sellers has never been found. Michelle's family was worried Jonathan Vick may have had something to do with Michelle's disappearance. Flash forward to 2008, and a woman in Oregon was watching an episode of Forensic Files that discussed the Dana Satterfield murder, Jonathan Vick's conviction, and that he was also a suspect in the disappearance of a woman named Michelle Whitaker. A photo flashed across the screen and the woman recognized her neighbor, Michelle Whitaker. She called the police in South Carolina to let them know where Michelle was and that she was alive and well. She had simply wanted to move away and start a new life. From some reports I've read, she is connected with her family again and is living life on her own terms in an undisclosed location. There have been several instances where people featured on Disappeared have been confirmed as being alive and chose to leave of their own free will, and I'm happy that this case had a positive outcome. Brittany Drexel was not so lucky. She was featured on Season 2, Episode 1, In the Secret Journey. Brittany's case is a little unusual in that she wasn't a resident of South Carolina when she went missing. Rather, she was on a spring break trip in April of 2009 with a group of friends from New York. This is a case that has been featured heavily in both national news media outlets and other true crime podcasts, so I'm just going to try and hit the highlights here. Brittany was a 17-year-old who grew up in the Rochester, New York area with her mother and stepfather Chad, who had adopted her when she was a young child. Her parents separated the year before Brittany went missing, which hit her particularly hard. 
In April 2009, she asked her mother Dawn if she could travel to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina with her boyfriend and some other friends for spring break. Dawn said no because she didn't know anything about the group of friends Brittany was wanting to travel with. Her mother's intuition was in high gear, and she also had a feeling something bad would happen to Brittany if she went. It caused a huge fight between the two, and Brittany left to go cool off at a friend's house for a few days. Or at least that's what she told her mother. That day, Brittany instead left for Myrtle Beach without telling her mother. She called home a few days later, and when her mom asked where she was, she said, the beach. Dawn assumed it was at a local beach near Lake Ontario, shoreline, and didn't press for details. Brittany had been staying with friends at the Bar Harbor Hotel in Myrtle Beach. Her boyfriend had ended up not going on the trip and staying behind to work instead. On the night of April 25th, Brittany left Bar Harbor to go visit another friend who was staying at the Blue Water Resort about a mile and a half away. According to surveillance footage at the Blue Water Resort, Brittany only stayed there a few minutes. She then left on foot around 9.15 p.m., walking down Ocean Boulevard alone while texting with her boyfriend, John. A traffic camera along the boulevard captured Brittany walking alone, focused on her phone. Her boyfriend became alarmed when the text suddenly stopped, and he was unable to reach Brittany. He called her friends in Myrtle Beach to see if they knew what had happened to her, and they reported she had never returned to the hotel room. He finally grew so concerned, he phoned Brittany's mother, Dawn, to let her know Brittany had taken the trip without their permission. The Myrtle Beach police were alerted, and they began a search the next morning. In Brittany's hotel room, they found her clothing and all the items except for her cell phone and purse. They talked to the people she had visited at the Blue Water Resort, a 20-year-old nightclub promoter from New York, and some of his friends. When I first heard about Brittany's disappearance, I thought back to my own memories of visiting Myrtle Beach while in high school. Ocean Boulevard is a very congested main road that leads into the main part of what is called the Grand Strand. The high-rise hotels all along that main strip house thousands of visitors each year. And not only that, there are plenty of area residents that drive in for the day. When I saw Brittany's surveillance footage and how petite she was, she weighed around 100 pounds and stood about five feet tall, I knew she would be a prime target for anyone looking to commit a crime of opportunity, especially if she came across a stretch of Ocean Boulevard that wasn't brightly lit and there weren't a lot of people around. Investigators were able to determine that Brittany's cell phone pinged on US 17 near Georgetown, South Carolina about 60 miles south of Myrtle Beach. The ping stopped abruptly the morning of April 26th, so an intensive search was performed in that area by law enforcement. After that, the case went cold for a couple of years. But in 2016, investigators held a news conference stating they had new information about what may have happened to Brittany. Since Brittany's episode of Disappeared aired, new developments in the case emerged and the HLN show Real Life Nightmare aired an update last December. In June 2016, a jailhouse informant named Taquan Brown told investigators that he'd seen Brittany at a stash house in McClellanville, South Carolina, which was near the area where her cell phone last pinged before it died. He was there to visit a man named Timothy Deshaun Taylor 
and the mobile home was owned by Taylor's father. The girl he thought was Brittany was being sexually assaulted by a group of men, and she had a black eye. He believed Timothy Taylor abducted Brittany with the purpose of selling her to human traffickers, but then panicked over the media coverage of the case. The informant said he was also present a few days later when Brittany attempted to escape her abductors and was shot before being dumped into a murky body of water known to attract alligators. This information is all very disturbing and had to have been very difficult for Brittany's family to hear. The problem was, there was no conclusive evidence corroborating Taquan Brown's story, and Timothy Taylor claimed he didn't even know who Taquan was. Taylor eventually pled guilty for his involvement in an armed robbery of a McDonald's in Mount Pleasant, and was sentenced to three years probation. Meanwhile, the informant, Taquan Brown, is serving a 25-year sentence for involuntary manslaughter in an unrelated case. A search of the property where the alleged stash house was turned up no leads, and in a strange coincidence, the Myrtle Beach Sun News reported it burned down in May of 2019. That same month, members of the FBI also gave a press conference where they released the following information. Another case, uh, I mean, obviously it's been 10 years, and that's why we're meeting here today, and that's why uh, Brittany's mother's in town. It's been 10 long years, and we understand to a degree the anguish that she's had to endure for these 10 years, her and her family. But I can tell you, um, as an investigative team, we continue to make positive strides in this case. Uh, we continue to receive information from the public and leads and develop additional leads from that information. Um, so that's heartening to see. Um, so again, uh, it's 10 years. We still don't have anybody in custody. Which obviously is, is not our goal, um, but we are making positive steps. Uh, everybody's invested in this case, as they would be in any case. Kidnapping uh, a, a child, uh, her death, like any law enforcement officer, any criminal investigator is reluctant to close a case out like that and just shift it aside. Plus, like I said, we're still receiving information about this case that's still taking us places. So as, as long as we're developing information that we feel is positive, we're going to keep working the case uh, as we have been. And, and I'll tell you, we've been working as diligently today uh, as we did on day one. So I, I haven't seen any of that waver at all. Brittany's family hasn't given up looking for her, but believes she was murdered not long after she disappeared. The case remains unsolved. The producers of Disappeared featured Liz and John Calvert from Hilton Head Island, South Carolina, on Season 2, Episode 5, Lost Trust. I discussed this case at length in a two-part episode that also featured interviews with two true crime authors who wrote about the disappearance. Here's a short clip from Episode 5. John Calvert was 47 years old and his wife Liz was 45 when they went missing back in 2008. They had been married for 10 years at the time of their disappearance. They were high-end entrepreneurs who owned several businesses on Hilton Head, including the Harbor Town Yacht Basin, Harbor Town Power Boats, and Harbor Town Resorts. Liz grew up in Atlanta and received her undergraduate degree from Converse College in Spartanburg, South Carolina. She graduated from law school at the University of Georgia and went to work as a staff attorney at UPS in Atlanta. 
After 14 years with the company, she joined Hunter McLean in Savannah, specializing in taxes, employee benefits, and executive compensation. In her spare time, she enjoyed flying and earned her pilot's license in 2006, eventually purchasing a plane that she flew regularly in and out of Hilton Head Island Airport. John grew up in Greensboro, North Carolina and graduated from Georgia Tech with a degree in mechanical engineering in 1983. The Calvert's 40-foot yacht, Yellow Jacket, was named after the mascot of John's alma mater. He actually proposed to Liz on Hilton Head Island, further making the island a beloved locale for the couple. After working for Duke Energy for many years, John semi-retired and in 2005 purchased the Hilton Head Island businesses. This is when Liz and John decided to split their time between their Atlanta home and the island. Because the club group business factors so heavily into this case, I wanted to give you some background information on it. It was founded in 1986 by two men named Mark King and Dennis Gerwing. Dennis served as the chief financial officer for the property management company, which managed Sea Pines Center, located within Sea Pines, which was also home to the club group's offices. The club group handled many of the Calvert's business affairs, including leasing and accounting services. Dennis had managed the finances for the companies Liz and John Calvert owned for at least 20 years because he had managed them for the previous owners as well. However, Liz was a savvy businesswoman and had grown suspicious that there was money missing from some of the couple's Hilton Head Island businesses. She and John set up an evening meeting with Dennis at the club group's offices on March 3rd to discuss the financials. At 5.32 p.m. that day, Liz passed through Hilton Head Island's Cross Island Parkway toll plaza. She was seen boarding the yellow jacket at 5.40 p.m. and emerged wearing more casual clothing. She got in her car, a Mini Cooper, and drove the short distance to Sea Pine Center, where she was to meet John at the club group's offices. It was the last time she and John were seen alive. If you haven't listened to the episodes featuring the mystery of Liz and John Calvert's disappearances, I invite you to revisit them in episodes five and six of this podcast. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. There's a joke in my house that every spring I find a new project to work on, whether it's decluttering, working on a novel, or buying new furniture and clothes. Spring always gives me a sense of renewal, and after the year we've all had, I'd say it's time to treat ourselves where we can. I recommend considering some of the ongoing offers over at WOW Women on Writing, such as submission consultations, where a writer can submit up to 4,500 words and then receive detailed feedback on where to submit. Or, choose a manuscript draft editing package for novels, short story collections, and memoirs, complete with a consultation. There's also an ongoing course that can help you simplify your book writing process with a book style guide and a course where you can learn how to showcase your online clips with websites. Best of all, these packages are all affordable and offer incredible value and a personal connection to help you improve your writing and get your projects that much closer to publication. To check out these offers and many other courses that are starting up at the beginning of April, visit wow-womenonwriting.com 
and click on the Classes tab to learn more. Let's get back to the show. Tammy Kingery's story was featured on Season 7, Episode 4 of Disappeared in Walk into Darkness. Tammy, who lived in North Augusta, South Carolina with her husband and three children, worked as a nurse at a nursing home. On September 20th, 2014, Tammy, who by all accounts from her friends and family had been battling depression, left work for a 7 a.m. shift. A co-worker reported Tammy had checked her blood pressure several times at work that morning before she called her husband to let him know she wasn't feeling well. Not wanting her to risk driving herself, husband Park picked her up around 10 a.m. Once they got home, Tammy told him she wanted to lie down for a little while and rest, so he took their two younger children with him to run errands, one of which involved his son stopping off at Tammy's mom's house to mow the lawn. When Park and the kids returned from their errands a few hours later, Tammy was nowhere to be found. They found a note in the kitchen that read, went for a walk, be back soon, love you. Park was immediately concerned because Tammy normally didn't take walks around their property, which was located in a pretty rural area of their town. He also knew she hadn't been feeling well, so he was worried she had left the house in order to harm herself. Because of this, he filed a report with the Edgefield County Sheriff's Office around 2 p.m. that very same day. He was also worried because a week earlier, Tammy had taken an overdose of prescription medication while drinking, and he was afraid she had become suicidal. She left behind her cell phone, keys, purse, and identification. It was also unusual that Park found the house locked from the outside when he returned, but the keys were still inside with Tammy's belongings. The house had a lock that could only be used from the outside. That weekend, the Edgefield County Sheriff's Office conducted a massive search of the wooded area surrounding the Kingery property, using helicopters, rescue teams, and search dogs, but weren't able to uncover any clues or leads to Tammy's whereabouts. Interviews with Tammy's family members revealed that she and Park had been struggling in their 20-year marriage. Investigators also uncovered text messages from two other men after an examination of her phone, but the disappeared episode revealed that the two men had been questioned and cleared of any involvement in her disappearance. Police also looked into Park, as the husband is typically the first suspect that needs to be cleared when a wife disappears. But because Park had picked Tammy up from work and two of their children were at home with him when he went to run errands after, he was cleared, because no one could see how he could physically have been involved. Also, as he told media outlets himself later on, Tammy was the breadwinner of the family, and they heavily relied on her income, so it wouldn't make any sense to make her disappear and not be found. Unfortunately, I think because in the following years, the crimes of South Carolina serial killer Todd Colehup came into light, there are many who think Tammy has been confirmed as one of his victims. From what I've read, there has never been any confirmation of that. Todd Colehup was a realtor from Woodruff, South Carolina, who also owned 100 acres of property aside from his permanent residence. Neighbors were suspicious when he had a chain-link fence put up on the property, which was estimated to have cost $80,000. Culhep's crimes began to come to light when investigators searching for a missing couple, Kayla Brown and Charlie Carver, discovered Kayla chained 
to a wall inside of a large storage container on Kolhep's property on November 3, 2016. She and her boyfriend, Charlie, had been hired by Kolhep to do some work around the property. Kayla told investigators Kolhep had shot Charlie in front of her and then buried his body before imprisoning her in the storage container for the next two months. Investigators also found the remains of another local couple, Megan Lee McGraw-Coxie and Johnny Joe Coxie, buried not far away on the property. After Kolhep was arrested, he then confessed that he had also killed four employees at the Superbike Motorsports Shop in an unsolved murder from November of 2003. He had a long history of violence and had even been convicted of kidnap and rape in the state of Arizona when he was 15 years old. I think where some of the confusion from Tammy's case comes is that Kolhub continued to tell news reporters after his arrest that there were more victims out there that hadn't been found, but he didn't see a need to name places or victims. Prosecutors at the time suspected he was trying to draw more attention to himself, as serial killers often do. While Tammy's disappearance did fit into the timeline of when Kolhep was committing murders, there is no evidence that they knew one another. Plus, the location from where she went missing and where Kolhep lived and worked was almost two hours away from each other. So unfortunately, I think some media outlets and bloggers have latched onto the fact that Tammy went missing in 2014 in South Carolina and Todd Kolhep was committing crimes in the same time period and in the same state but I suspect the two are not related. There has been no evidence that Tammy is still alive or living anywhere else. She would now be 44 years old. At the time of her disappearance, Tammy, a white female with blonde hair and hazel eyes, stood around five feet, four inches tall and weighed 125 pounds. Anyone with information about this case should call the Edgefield County Sheriff's Office at 803 637 5337. North Charleston resident Brandy Hanna was featured on Love Triangle on Season 7, Episode 9 of the show. She was 32 years old when she went missing from her apartment on the evening of May 20, 2005. Before we get into the details of her disappearance, I want to give you a little backstory on Brandy's living situation. She had lived with a man named Michael Ray McAdams for about six years, but then his friend Zeke Langford temporarily moved in with the couple after leaving his wife and kids. During this time period, Brandy and Zeke developed a romantic relationship, and when Michael asked Zeke to leave the home, Brandy chose to move with him. In the Disappeared episode, Brandy's mother, Donna Parent, expressed that she was a little uncomfortable with the apartment Brandy and Zeke moved into after leaving Michael's house. It was in a neighborhood that was known for having a lot of drug and criminal activity. Brandy assured her mother that they would be fine, and it was just a few miles from Alex's restaurant, where Brandy worked and Donna also worked as a manager. But after only a month of living in the apartment together, Zeke decided to move back in with his wife and children leaving Brandy alone. She held on to hope that he would change his mind and return back to her. In the meantime, she spent her days working at Alex's restaurant, which is what she did on May 20th. Brandy, who didn't have a car or a license, got a ride home with a local retired police officer who drove people around in the area for extra money. 
Her friends and family described Brandy as a homebody, and that's what she liked to do after finishing up a long shift at the diner. Donna talked to her at close to 6 p.m. that evening. She was excited about visiting the local beach. A few hours later, she texted one of her girlfriends asking if she could get a ride to the store so she could pick up a new bathing suit for that weekend's trip. Her friend arrived at her apartment around 10.30 p.m. that night, but Brandy didn't answer the door. Her friend said she heard the TV on inside of the apartment, but no other movement, so she figured Brandy had fallen asleep and left. Three days later, on May 23rd, Brandy failed to show up for her scheduled shift at Alex's restaurant. Her co-workers alerted Donna, and after failing to reach Brandy on her cell phone, she tried to file a report with the local police department. But because Brandy was an adult, the police were hesitant to file a missing persons report so soon. Donna then called Zeke Langford because he still had a key to the apartment and asked if he would meet her there so they could check inside. When she arrived, Zeke was already inside and nothing seemed to be disturbed. Brandy had left clothing and money behind, a prepaid cell phone charging beside her bed. Another cell phone she used was missing. It looked as if she had just run out for a minute but never returned. She was officially able to file a missing persons report with the North Charleston Police Department seven days after Brandy was last heard from. This is when police started to uncover a string of interesting clues about what may have transpired the day and night Brandy went missing. The disappeared episode detailed how Brandy had received a phone call at Alex's restaurant on the afternoon of May 20th. No one knew who the phone call was from, but Brandy was visibly upset once she ended the call. Later that night, police discovered she had been texting with Zeke Langford. They wondered if she had been planning to meet up with him, as she was still telling people there was hope that they would reconcile. A neighbor at the apartment complex came forward and told police they had seen a red pickup truck pull into the parking lot a little after 9 p.m., and Brandy got in it. The pickup had a white hockey mask on the front grill. The plumbing company, both Zeke Langford and Michael Ray McAdams worked for, used red pickup trucks for their work vehicles. Zeke's father owned the plumbing company. When police asked Zeke if he had seen Brandy that night, he told them he had to work wasn't able to go by the apartment. Investigators suspected Brandy had been caught in the middle of a love triangle between the two men and something went wrong. Both Zeke and Michael were brought in for questioning and agreed to take polygraph tests. Both men passed. What I found really sad about this case was that Donna Parent tried to go to the media for help with Brandy's story but this was around the same time that Natalie Holloway went missing in Aruba. Every local and national newspaper and TV station in the country prioritized that story. Eventually, Donna was able to get more press for Brandy, and since then, it has been covered in the Charleston Post and Courier, local TV stations, and caught the attention of the disappeared producers. In April of 2016, almost a year after Brandy went missing, Michael Ray McAdams, suffered a heart attack and died. Donna told Disappeared that she had come to the conclusion that he wasn't involved in what happened with Brandy and apologized to him before his death for doubting his involvement. Zeke Langford was eventually arrested on a criminal sexual misconduct charge not related to Brandy's case. While he was incarcerated awaiting trial for those charges, 
investigators took the opportunity to question him once more about his whereabouts on the night Brandy disappeared. Post and Courier columnist Brian Hicks reported that Zeke admitted he lied about working late that night and that he had visited Brandy at the apartment. He also said he had made anonymous calls to the police department during the investigation where he tried to implicate other people, namely Michael Ray McAdams, involved in Brandy's case. Zeke stopped short of admitting he knew anything else about Brandy's whereabouts. He was charged with obstruction of justice for lying to investigators, pled guilty, and received a two-year sentence and another two years of probation. I haven't been able to find any information about if he was found guilty on the sexual misconduct charges. This case has taken so many strange twists and turns. In May of 2011, an investigator found a white Nike sneaker a few blocks from Brandy's apartment complex in an old Navy shipyard on the riverfront in North Charleston. Brandy's mom recognized the sneaker as one Brandy had purchased to wear to work, and it was the same size as her daughter's foot, but DNA results on the sneaker proved to be inconclusive. Subsequent searches of the area were unable to find any human remains. Michael Ray McAdams Sr., the father of Brandy's ex-boyfriend, who passed away from a heart attack, gave a television interview to a local news outlet in the summer of 2016 where he claimed he had heard Zeke Langford had sold Brandy to pay off a drug debt. New stunning developments tonight in the disappearance of Brandy Hanna, who disappeared in 2005. The father of one of her ex-boyfriends believes Hanna was sold to drug dealers to settle a debt. Police reporter Harp Jacobs tells us investigators are closely analyzing the tip. Brandy Hanna has been missing for more than 11 years. Yesterday, her ex-boyfriend was charged with lying to investigators about what he knows about Hannah's disappearance. Detectives say Garland Zeke Langford also is suspected of killing her, but has not been charged with Hannah's murder. However, this man says maybe that's not what happened. Michael McAdams Sr.'s late son at one time was a suspect in the case, but has since been cleared. McAdams says his son lived with Hannah before she left him for Langford. McAdams says he was given information that Hannah was sold to drug dealers because Langford couldn't pay them. I was told that uh, Brandy was collateral for Zeke Langford's death. Uh, and uh, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but I was told she was sent to Houston to help pay off the debt. Sergeant Ron Lacker, the lead investigator on the Hannah case, told me McAdams came to him with the tip a few weeks ago and wished he came to him sooner. Lacker says there is no credible information that shows Hannah was sold to drug dealers, but says investigators will look into any tip or information that is passed on to them. McAdams believes Langford knows what happened to Hannah. In the news article that accompanied the segment, Sergeant Ron Lacker, the lead investigator on the case, also said they believed two other area low country residents had been involved in Brandy's disappearance and urged them to come forward with information. There has still been no resolution in Brandy's case. Anyone with information should contact the North Charleston Police Department at 843-745-1015. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. So please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. 
If you want to visit my blog and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. You can also find the show notes with links to more information about these cases there, too. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson. Thank you so much for listening.